So glad to be here again. I am super excited to be sharing out of our second week of What's the Point, where we're exploring the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this What's the Point series is really exploring, like, what's the point of life? And I think that's an important question that we continue to ask and make sure that we work through that. Now, we are going to explore some of the richest and even some of the most popular, some of the most famous wisdom literature of all time. And most people agree that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Solomon, uh, but Solomon was a king of Israel. And Solomon actually had a daddy. Maybe you've heard of his daddy's name. His name was King David, and he also was the king of Israel. And uh, Solomon, I think, was reflecting on his dad's life, possibly, thinking about maybe some of the successes that his dad had, but also some of the failures. And I think he began to reflect on his own life, some of his successes. He was said to be the one of the wisest man that ever lived, but he also was reflecting on his failures and thinking about the upcoming generation. I think he wanted to compile some helpful wisdom that would be good to serve whoever would read it. And that's what we have here in Ecclesiastes. Now, the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he calls himself the teacher, okay? And we heard a little bit about that last week. I uh, think of a wise sage, right? Maybe you've watched Star Wars. I haven't actually watched the Star Wars series. Please don't hold me to account on that. I know everybody thinks I'm crazy. I've not seen any of them. However, I do like Yoda. I actually have uh, learned Yoda uh, quite a bit. I think he's a sage that I just, I want to emulate my life after. He's, he's incredible as far as I know. Maybe there's some things about him I don't know, but he, I re, I'm reminded of Yoda when I think about Solomon. He's this teacher and he's like, teach you I will. You know, he's, he's like, I'm going to school you. That was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I've been practicing it for years. Never watched a movie. Anyway, neither here nor there. So, uh, you know, he's like, man, I'm about to drop some knowledge on you guys. And, and that's what's going to happen as we read through Ecclesiastes. Now, I consider myself a student of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I'm a disciple. And that's what that word means. I'm a student. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, that means you're a student as well. And my understanding about students and disciples is that we actually never stop being students. We never stop learning. We never stop growing. And so my hope is that through this series that you will continue to grow in your knowledge of who God is, not just intellectually, but personally, and that it would produce growth in your life. Now, if you're following along with us, I want to encourage you to jump on your YouVersion Bible app. If you get down to the bottom right corner there, there's a button in the menu that says more. And if you select more, then you can go look and it says events, choose events, find Northwood Church. And you can follow along. There's a little outline there. And we're in chapter two, but I didn't use all the scriptures. If you're a student, you might want to go and read all of chapter two. I think it would benefit you. But you can follow along in the YouVersion app just the same with the scriptures I did offer. And I think it'll be helpful for you. So now that you're set up on your Bible app, I want to remind you about last week. Last week, what we were reminded of is that life is like a breath, right? Life is like a breath and you breathe it in and then you breathe it out. It's here in a moment and then it's gone. And it has value when we breathe it in. If you were to take a breath right now, a deep breath, you, man, you're like, that feels good. There's value. And then you breathe it out and it no longer has value for you. And you're looking to breathe your next breath. And life is like us trying to constantly grasp for breath. As a matter of fact, the uh, book of Ecclesiastes says it's like grasping for the wind. 
Imagine someone trying to grasp for the wind. It's impossible. You can't catch the wind. And so uh, if I were to think about life, it's almost like this picture of this thing that's fleeting, and it's very difficult to ever catch up with it. And, and really, Solomon teaches us throughout this process is that everything is meaningless. Now, we'll learn later on that what he means is everything is meaningless apart from Christ. And that's really the punchline of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless without Christ. And you're going to learn some more things that are meaningless specifically today. Now, our culture... And I don't just mean American culture, but Western culture and, and anything that really elevates some of the values that we have in our Western culture. Our Western culture really does elevate this idea that if you work hard enough and if you work smart enough, that you'll be able to attain all the things that you would ever want. Your dreams will be re- reached and, and you can have all of the pleasure that you ever desired at your fingertips. And there's some truth to that. If you work hard enough, you really can make some amazing things happen, especially in this great nation, the home of the free, the land of the brave. It's a land of opportunity. However, there's some pitfalls in that type of pursuit. Now, I want to kind of point you back to something that happened earlier in the Bible. God placed two people in the Garden of Eden. That was Adam and Eve. Now, he placed them in the garden for a couple reasons, and I want to just kind of highlight those for a moment. One, to work it. Did did you know that work is not part of the curse? Work actually came before the curse. It was part of Adam and Eve's purpose in the garden. And, And they were given the responsibility to steward and to care for the garden. So to, to work the garden, but then to, to take pleasure in it, to enjoy it. Now we know that God, his ultimate desire would be that Adam and Eve were to delight in him and him alone, but that didn't mean that he didn't want them to take pleasure in the garden. As a matter of fact, he said, you can have anything here that you want, eat from all of these trees, except one. And he drew a boundary, but the boundary was vast and broad. There was so much inside of that boundary that they had access to, except that one tree. And what Adam and Eve did was they were discontent and they wanted what was seemingly more. They wanted that thing that was outside of the boundaries. They thought it was going to be better. And what happened is they took it and ultimately Adam and Eve in taking the fruit of that tree, they wound up settling for less. They settled for less than God's best. God had a best plan for them. They chose something else and now they don't have God's best. And like Adam and Eve, We were created for work and we were created to enjoy the fruit of our labor, to take pleasure in these things. And I'll be honest with you, if I were to look at the way that I take pleasure in life at times, I'm doing it without delighting in God first and taking pleasure solely in that created thing. And what happens is, I'm gonna tell you a secret, I'm settling for less too. And if you were honest you would probably say that there's a lot of times that you settle for less as well. And so it's important that we ask some hard questions. Now, Solomon does show us that life is a beautiful and wonderful gift. So there is this very positive perspective here, but we're also gonna look at his critique on life. He paints this bleak picture of how a meaningless pursuit of work and pleasure can actually lead to emptiness and a lack of fulfillment. So we're going to start by talking about pleasure. And this is really the point, that pleasure is meaningless apart from Christ, without Christ. 
Now, he speaks, the teacher, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So he's testing himself. Enjoy yourself. But behold, and he found this was vanity. That means this was meaningless. And over the next seven verses, which I'm not going to read to you, but you can go back and look at them later. I'm going to summarize them. Really what he's saying is he explains this meaningless pursuit and he reminds himself and his reader that he wanted to find meaning and value in entertainment. And so he went and he looked for laughter, hoping that that would add value and meaning to his life. And he watched all the funniest movies, I'm sure. And he scrolled through and found all the dankest memes, right? And he put them in a little folder so he could share them with his, his buddies. And still, with all the laughter, he didn't find that value and meaning. Then we also see that he went down to his bar and he made drink after drink after drink. And he had the impression that he kept himself uh, pretty, pretty sober-minded through that process, it seems. And uh, I'm not convinced. Maybe he was high-functioning. Who knows? But I, I do know this. He was looking for cheer, and he never found it. He found foolishness. He said it of himself. Then we see that he built houses. He wanted more square footage in nicer neighborhoods. He wanted the vacation home at the beach. He wanted the vacation home in the mountains. And that didn't satisfy his deepest yearnings. And so he planted vineyards and he planted gardens and built parks. And he had the best wine and the greenest grass. And, and some would even say, uh, some theologians think that he was maybe trying to really recreate this utopian Garden of Eden trying to bring things back to this place of perfection where there was perfect peace with God, where there was perfect unity with God and he could enjoy the creation of God being fulfilled and whole. But life was broken and still is apart from Christ. And so he found that this was meaningless too. And he had servants and possessions and silver and gold. And he had lounge singers serenading him at the parties. And he, he actually overindulged in women. And, and this sounds like a true story of some Hollywood actor, right? This sounds like some Hollywood Hills type party. And, and, and he was having a blast and throwing these parties, but he never found value or meaning. Everything was meaningless. He continues in verse nine. He said, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He said, I didn't just keep up with the Joneses. I outpaced the Joneses. I blew their battleship out of the water. Look at my boat, right? <laughs> Look at me. He exceeded what everyone else was doing. In verse 11, he says, then he considered all his hands had done and the toil he had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it, vanity, all of it was striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was meaningless. Man, that's a tough spot to be where everything that you've built your life on and everything that you have tried to accumulate and everything that you thought was where value was found, you realize that's not where value is found. And in our culture, what happens is we do have the same tendencies that Solomon had. Uh, it is part of our sin nature that we inherited in the garden when Adam and Eve overstepped that boundary. And in our culture, the marketplace really does entice that sinful tendency, those sinful desires, and leverages it for their gain. Now, 
before you get the impression that I'm knocking the marketplace. I'm not. There's great things about the marketplace, but we still have to acknowledge that there's people that do want to leverage the brokenness of our hearts for their game. I'm going to give you an example. A man named Paul Mazur from uh, the Lehman Brothers. Uh, The Lehman Brothers was a global financial firm that was from the late 1800s and actually collapsed in 2008 when our market collapsed. And and after World War II, all of our uh, soldiers were coming home from war and there was this new Uh, affluence in our nation. And he said, this is what we've got to do. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Now you've got this quote right up here. And I just want to let you know, that's not the type of quote that you want to go and post. It's not an inspirational quote, right? Like, unless you you know, want to bring the trolls out. That's all on you. But I don't suggest that you post that because that's not our philosophy, but that's a, 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 a highlight, an example of what, of what many people's philosophy in the marketplace is. And they want to leverage our sin and our, and our desires for gain. Now, the question is, is the culture to blame? I would say absolutely not. You see, because I would do the exact same thing if I was building a corporation or if I was selling a product, if I wasn't a disciple of Christ that was ethically and morally bound to the scripture and led by the spirit. And we don't expect that all of the culture have the same values that we have as Christians, right? So no, we're not surprised that the culture would do that. And and we're not sure that the idea that the culture has always been needs-based and then became pleasure-based based on, the, on, on, on maybe some of these kinds of thoughts that Paul Mazur shared. We're not sure that that's true. If you look at Solomon, he was a pleasure-based culture as well. So I can't say for sure that once we were a needs-based culture and now we're pleasure-based and things have changed and we need to get back to where it was. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this is an issue with the brokenness of humanity And we just see examples of it repeated all throughout time. But we have a choice. And if we're not careful, we will overconsume our pleasures. And what will happen is our pleasures will then consume us. Are there any pleasures you've ever overconsumed that then began to consume you? I lived that for many years. Maybe you're living that or have lived that and can testify to that reality. We need to be very mindful about the choices that we make in our consumption. Now, the WHO, that's the World Health Organization, they've been in the news quite a bit lately, right? For a number of reasons, some people love it, other people have other opinions, Uh, but they published, I think, a, a helpful study in 2017 that really highlighted the fact that more affluent countries actually have higher rates of anxiety disorder in their country, which I think is extremely interesting because you'd think if you had what you wanted, then you wouldn't have to worry, right? But what we find is that when you have all of these options and opportunities and everybody's growing around you and and striving after their goals, all of a sudden there's this cultural expectation. And then what happens is there's comparison and people become restless in their soul and there's this this fruitless striving after uh, uh, ambition and goals that winds up leaving us in this place of brokenness. And we're in the rat race and we're trying to cope with life and we're trying to escape many things. And and ultimately, many people are even trying to validate themselves, their worth and their value. And it's it's the rat race and it's killing us. It's it's very disruptive if, if it's not in order. You know, comedian 
Jerry Seinfeld, he was, uh, I read a quote that he had shared that uh, I thought was really, really impactful. He's like, these people, they just, they, now I can't, I can't say what he's going to say here with that voice because what he's going to say is actually kind of sobering. He says, people are looking for little islands of relief in what's often a painful existence. Think about that for a second. Now, some of this sounds contrary to the idea that I shared earlier that really pleasure is a gift from God. And pleasure is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. And, and we need to remember that enjoying life's pleasures isn't actually sinful. What is sinful, what does become problematic is when you think that the pleasures that you're enjoying are actually a solution to life's problems. What you've done then is you've made an idol. You're looking for rest and comfort and peace and joy and fulfillment in something that you weren't supposed to find it in. You're supposed to find that in God first and then simply enjoy his creation out of that fulfillment that you already have. And so we have to examine our motives and we have to ask ourselves, am I overindulging in anything? Are you? Is there anything I'm taking too much liberty in? Have I overreached that boundary that God has set in my life? And then, we have to ask, what is my source of joy? When, when my equilibrium, my emotional you know, health is disrupted, what am I going to to recenter? Am I going to God so that he can bring wholeness and healing or am I going to something else? We have to ask these questions and be, be brutally honest with ourselves if we don't want to get caught in the trap of overconsumption that will eventually lead to you being consumed. So that's pleasure. Now, I'm going to skip the next several verses, 12 through 17, where Solomon talks about wisdom, and, and we're going to explore wisdom in the next several weeks. Uh, I'm excited about that. But for now, we're going to go down to verse 18, and here is where we're going to learn that the teacher is really telling us that uh, not only is pleasure meaningless, but work is meaningless without Jesus. This is a section of the text where I've heard some people call it the confessions of a workaholic. He said in verse 18, I hated all my toil, all my work in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom for under the sun. This is also vanity. Then he says in verse 20 to 23, basically, I'm working my fingers to the bone just to hand it over. And he's frustrated and restless about it. Now, he's not talking about working today and the next shift coming in and jacking his work all up and him having to come back in the morning and fix what they did. No, he's talking about this, this much bigger view. That would be short-sighted. He's, he's got a generational view. He's saying, what will the totality of my life produce in relationship to value for the next generation? And he has concerns that everything that he's building may not find itself being of value to the next generation that they might not even steward it well. Now, that's, this doesn't mean don't work, right? I know a lot of us are like, yeah, man, well, then why work? I'm going to the beach. It's like, I don't know what time it is. I don't have to know what time it is. I'm putting on some flip-flops, right? It's island time. That, that sounds good, but that's not what this is about. We're supposed to work. Remember, that's part of what God put Adam and Eve in the garden to do. But we're supposed to work for the right reasons. We're supposed to work for God's glory. We're supposed to work for the flourishing of man to serve others. 
And then ultimately, we're also supposed to set boundaries around our work as well so that those things that we are responsible for don't consume our rest that comes from the Lord. And so these are two important things to keep in mind in relationship to work. Now, in relationship to to workaholism, I saw workaholism and I see it still happening in many other families. But in my own family, I saw workaholism completely destroy the intimacy of relationships. My family of origin on some levels, there's a number of of reasons why it happened. And and my parents wouldn't mind me sharing this, but it's part of their testimony. But, But workaholism led to a complete breakdown in the structure of our family and it ruined lives. And if I was to be frank, people are still healing from it today. See, This whole idea that we should be possessed with this restless ambition to achieve, this whole idea that it's business first, no off button, never never clocking out, always on the emails, always building the platform pace that we kind of live life by, that will lead to a breakdown in your own health and that will lead to a breakdown in the health of the relationships of the people in your life and in the relationship that you have with God. And so the problem is, is that we find identity, right? We find our identity in what we do instead of in who we are. Think about it. When you introduce yourself to somebody, hi, I'm so-and-so. What's your name? Oh yeah, nice to meet you. What do you do? Because we identify with work. But that wasn't what God intended. That's backwards. God didn't create us to be human doings. God created us to be human beings. And when we be what God created us to be, then the doing comes out of that. And what God created you to be is a masterpiece. When you look in Ephesians, we see that God not only created you for for good works, but first he created you as a masterpiece. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God the creator himself, and you are intended to reflect God's image to all humanity and all creation for his glory. That's who you are. That's what we're supposed to be resting in. And then all of our doing is supposed to come out of that. Are you okay with that? Are you secure in your identity in Christ and who God says you are? Because if you're not, you will wind up in this horrible rhythm of restlessness and brokenness that will ultimately lead to what was in my life tragedy, but in others' lives, if nothing else, at least meaninglessness. And who wants to live a meaningless life? So when I think about who we're supposed to work for, we're supposed to work for God. And when, if anything in our lives is, uh, if we begin to work for anything or anyone in our lives, whether it's, it's goals or our spouse or our kids or uh, you know, certain other things, then what we do is unintentionally make those things an idol. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're not on the list. But what I am saying is that when those things are higher than God on the list, then the order is out of balance. And so we need to elevate God, magnify God, put him back in his rightful place in our motivations, in our heart. Work, I think, is an incredible privilege. The fact that we get to cultivate and create and curate and serve God and serve others with the gifts that we've been given, I think it's a wonderful privilege and we need to exercise it in the best way possible. We need to be faithful with it. We need to be excellent in our lives. 
but the order has to be right. It's got to be out of this rest in God. And then you can enjoy the fruit of your labor. And then you can enjoy the gifts that your creator gave you. And it's all for the glory of God. So the question is, will we choose to honor God with our work, with our lives, or will we choose something else? I think if we choose to honor God, humbly stewarding the opportunities and the blessing of work that God gives us and the enjoyment of the pleasure that he allows for us, we will live a meaningful life. And that brings us to the last part of this message. And really in the next couple of verses, uh, verses 24, um, we see that contentment in God and his gifts is the meaningful life. These are considered the carpe diem message, uh, uh, verses in this message. The seize life, the focus on the now, the be present in the moment verses. And what he says is this. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? See, God's not some cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want us to never experience any joy, but we are in our working hard and in our having fun and in our enjoying life supposed to do it in a way where we're remembering who our source is. It all came from the hand of God. And when we keep that focus, we can celebrate the abundant life that God has given us. We can have Joy. We can, we can throw a party, if you will, over the, the wonderful things that God has done for us in this life. But we need to celebrate in a way that's holy and that magnifies God. Do you agree with that? And so in verse 25, he finishes, he says, for apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Apart from Christ, you cannot enjoy what God has given you, it will be like a breath that comes and goes and you'll be filled in a moment and then empty in the next. But if you want to stay filled with the joy of the Lord, if you want to be fulfilled in your life and have value and meaning, then we have to understand that we can't do that apart from Christ. If you do, you'll be settling for less. You know, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, our problem is not that we desire too much. It's that we desire too little. See, we can get caught up on the, the focus, oh, I want this and I want that, and, and begin to really critique that. But what we're doing is we're focusing on the wrong thing. If we'll focus on the fact that all of the desires of our heart are met in the person of Christ, then those things take care of themselves and we can actually have the desires of our hearts met because in Christ, he gives us the, desire, uh, the desires of his heart. He makes our heart desire what his heart desires and then he says, I'll give you the desires of your heart and we'll live fulfilled. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the prodigal son. If you haven't, it's wonderful. You should go read it. It's in the book of Luke. If you Google it, a TV show will come up and you won't be able to find the scripture anywhere. So you'll have to say the prodigal son scripture in order to find it. But in the prodigal son, what we see is a, a son who was staying in his father's estate. And he said, you know what? All of this is wonderful, but I want more. And he said, dad, give me my inheritance. 
And his dad painfully, brokenheartedly gave him his inheritance and his son went and his son squandered it. The Bible says in some translations that he lived lasciviously, completely sinfully, partying it up, blowing all the dough. And he finds himself in an incredibly difficult position where he's covered in filth and he realizes the brokenness and the destitution of his life. And he says, man, I could be the lowest servant in my father's household and live better than this. He said, I've got to run home to my father. And so he makes his way and he's wondering, what am I going to say? And what am I going to do? I doubt that he'll, he'll welcome me back. And, and he crosses over that horizon and, and, and who was there waiting for him? His dad. And his dad ran towards him in a completely undignified fashion, ran towards him, threw his arms wide open, threw a, a, a cloak over him and covered his filthiness with the most beautiful robe. And he embraced his son. And he, he called for his house to do what? Well, hey, guys, uh, put away uh, all the things that could remind uh, my son of his previous life. Hey, son, I just want to let you know, now that you've kind of gone and sown your wild oats, uh, we're never going to really celebrate or have fun again or do anything, you know. No, that's not what he did. He said, hey, guys, get the fatted calf. We're about to party because my son who was once dead is now alive, and this is worth celebrating. And so God is not trying to take joy and celebration from our lives. He's trying to orient our joy and celebration around the right things. And this is the Christian life. And this is how Jesus served us. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. And in this life, we live as righteous followers of Jesus. And in the life to come that's following, we will live in the fullness of what he has promised. And there is a feast that is waiting for us. But between now and then, we take the Lord's Supper and we celebrate. We remember, no, we're not doing that today. But, but this is a picture of the joy that we have in the Lord. And Jesus didn't only die on the cross and use his blood to cover the, the, the sinfulness in our lives so that we could be clothed in righteousness, so that we could be forgiven. But he also, after being buried for three days, rose from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he also then ascended to heaven. And he then also sits at the right hand of the Father. And Psalm 16 says, at the right hand of the Father is where all of the eternal pleasures are. All eternal pleasures are found in Christ. And that's why we can say everything is meaningless apart from Christ. Because like Ephesians 2 says, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And so every eternal pleasure that Christ has in him is ours. And this is something to celebrate. Would you agree with that? And so what I want to do right now is I want to ask you, do you trust that Jesus has the power to forgive you? Do you trust that Jesus has the power to save your soul from the brokenness and the the darkness of this life? Do you trust that Jesus has the power to make you whole, to mend the brokenness of your heart? Do you trust that Jesus wants you as his own and wants to go with you in his life? If you trust that Jesus has the authority and the, and the power to do these things, if you believe that he can do it, then I encourage you 
surrender to it. And now is a perfect opportunity for you to do that. So what I wanna do right now is I wanna give you a chance to put your trust in Jesus. You know, it's really simple. It's not complicated. He's not asking for you to do anything that, that you have the power to do. What he's asking for you to do is to accept what he's already done. Isn't that a wonderful reality? You don't have to do anything to receive the love and forgiveness of the Father. You just have to say, I understand that I need the love and forgiveness of the Father. And I am willing to lay my life down at the feet of Jesus. That's your role. And he'll take care of the rest as you start to learn to walk with him. But right now, you have a choice to make. Are you going to surrender? Will you join me in prayer? God, there are people that are watching in different places all across South Mississippi. There's people watching in different places in this country, in different places in this world. And there will be people that go back and watch this later. And Lord, I pray that whoever is watching this video right now would realize that they are deeply loved. That, that you love them as a father. And though they may have taken the, the liberty that you've given them in this life, the pleasure and the opportunity that you've given this in, 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 them in this life, and they've used it for their own good, or maybe even for the good of others, but not for your glory, God. God, for those people that are realizing that right now, that they would turn from that and turn towards you and realize that you are, are more than enough, that you cover all of who they are. God, that you cover all of their brokenness and all of their sin and all of the dirtiness of their lives and you will make them whole. God, let whoever is watching this right now confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Give them the the conviction, Lord, by your Holy Spirit for them to believe that Jesus did raise from the grave and that they are raised with him in the newness of life. God, let them realize right now that they have abundant life as they lay their lives down at the feet of Jesus. If you decided that that's what you want, then all you have to do is say, that's me. I trust you, Jesus. Forgive me. Thank you. That's it. You've just put your life in the hands of a loving Savior. And he is able to fulfill you and give you value and meaning and everything you could ever hope for in this life and the next. And it is the most important thing that you understand that the greatest gift you'll have ever received from God is the salvation that you just received now. So come on, we're excited that you prayed that prayer. For the rest of us, and you too, if you prayed that prayer now, God, what do you want us to do from here? God, we want to live our lives in a way that honors you. We want to live our lives in a way that, that, that reflects your character, in a way that, that helps other people see that you are good. And so, Lord, as we move through this weekend, as we move through this next week, Lord, I pray that you would be magnified in our lives, that all of these other things that have, have risen up in our lives and have stolen our affection away, that we've been finding pleasure in, God, that is not you. God, we lay all of those idols down at your feet. And we say, it's for you, Jesus, that we live. It's from you that we find pleasure. And it's in you that we have everything that we could ever hope for or need. And so what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna go back into this song, Christ Be Magnified. And what I want you to do is with this fresh perspective on God and your purpose and who he is and what he says about you, worship out of that and let Christ be glorified in your life right now. Come on, let's worship.
that you call us yours. Come on, say thank you, Jesus, right now if you're thankful. So thankful that we could worship together today. Listen, if you fall into one of the following categories, I want to invite you to stick around to the end because we have something special for you. If you are new here, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, if, or if you're interested in small groups at any one of our four locations, we want to help you take some next steps with Jesus. So we're super excited about that. If you go to northwood.church slash next steps, fill that out and somebody will be able to reach out to you, connect you with all the details, but also uh, Victor and Amber will be giving you some more information about next steps here in just a moment. So from the team and everybody here, we just want to extend a huge thank you for joining us this morning. Have a wonderful day. Have a wonderful Memorial Day as you remember what matters today and take care. We'll see you soon.